Well, good morning, everyone. I was thinking this week, those of you who have been part of this journey over the past many months, you ought to get some sort of course credit. Because when you spend six months uh, working through one of the teachings of the Bible, you know that you're doing it with the same depth and thoughtfulness that would be included in any first-year Bible college offering. So I'm proud of you. Thank you for staying with us throughout the journey. If you were with us last week, you know that we unpacked one of the more confusing, one of the more controversial, sometimes misunderstood statements that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. It was that little teaching where he talks about there being a wide gate that lots of people go through and a narrow gate that only some go through. And if you were with us last week, either in person or online, you remember that that touches on a lot of very timely and very sensitive questions about religion in general and about Christianity in particular. Specifically, is Christianity narrow-minded in the way that it looks at the world, in the way that it looks at people? And if you were with us last week, you remember that the answer to that question is found in what is really a stunning paradox, a paradox that's revealed when you look deeply at the life and the teaching of Jesus. When you look carefully, you'll see that, that Jesus was relentlessly narrow and focused when it came to his devotion to God. But at the same time, he is outrageously broad-minded in the scope of his relationships with human beings. On the one hand, he makes some of the most profound and exclusive statements that we have in all of the Bible and in all of religion. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And yet, this same man who makes those staggering exclusive claims pursues these relationships with other people that are breathtakingly and sometimes almost scandalously inclusive. It's like the narrow he gets, the narrow he gets in his devotion to God, the wider he gets in his love for and willingness to welcome human beings. And his way of welcoming human beings into the kingdom of God, incredibly wide, uh, inclusive, at the same time has within it not just an invitation, but a challenge. A challenge having come into this new reality of the kingdom to live a life that has a clear direction, a clear purpose, a clear devotion to God. In that sense, the gate is narrow. Wide in relationships, but narrow in devotion. Today, in the section we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount, the theme switches from what's going on outside, all of those outward relationships, to what's going on inside of us. It focuses on the inner life. Our family, our, our household, we're, we're going through a backyard makeover of sorts, excavating and building and tearing up old flower beds and putting in new flower beds and, and moving around all the plants. And I, I noticed this week that about half of the plants that I moved earlier this month have turned an exquisite new shade of brown, the kind of, the kind of brown that says I really messed up the transplant. Uh, and that's about my track record when it comes to working out in the gardens. Some things grow, most things don't, and that's why I stick mainly just to mowing the lawn. 
whatever genetic marker or predisposition there might be for agriculture, which is so strong in my agricultural family, clearly didn't get passed down to me. My parents' house, on the other hand, my parents' house is a home and gardens showpiece. They have won awards. They have gardens that are just ablaze with color. Growing up in their household, Daniel, Selah, oh, beautiful Jane. Oh, wonderful. Welcome. Sorry, distracted. <laughs> Growing up, backyard, beautiful, lush, strawberries, rhubarb, fruit trees, cherries, pears, apples. And I was thinking about that imagery this week as I read through this section of Matthew 7. And as I was thinking about it, these questions came to mind. Can we be, can we be people like that? People who consistently bear a gorgeous and healthy variety of fruit in our lives? Can we produce good fruit? Can we produce without all the, the striving and and conniving and strategizing? Can we produce in dry seasons, when, when life is hard, when the ground is hard? I'm going to invite you to turn with me in the Gospel of Matthew to chapter 7. Open up your Bibles there, or your devices. And let's look again at those verses that Abby read so beautifully for us. Matthew seven fifteen to 20. Watch out for false prophets, Jesus begins. Who are the false prophets? They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly, though, they're like ferocious wolves. So how can you tell the difference? By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Do they get figs out of thistles? No. Every good tree bears good fruit. And bad trees produce bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. The key verse in the text, of course, is that one that says, by your fruit, you will recognize them. By the fruit, you will know them. Again, it starts with a warning about prophets. Who are the prophets? The prophets, any teachers, any teachers in the ancient world, any teachers even in our world, who are trying to give instruction about how to live life. How is it that you have the good life? A prophet, it turns out, is anyone that you give authority and permission to speak into your life right now. So think about it. Who are the prophets in your life? Who are the people that you have given permission and authority to speak? It could be a person. It could be a group of people. It could be a website. It could be a content stream on Facebook. It could be a random mix of podcasts, celebrity, a news channel, or just simply your favorite ideology. But the key question in this text is, what determines whether that's a good person or a good source of information? And what determines a good life at the end of all of it? I mean, in reality, let's face it, we are all a mix of the good and the bad, are we not? My actions are not all good. They're not all bad. Um, Some days I like to think that they're more good than bad, though occasionally people would disagree. There are some days when I feel like, boy, that was a horrible day, more bad than good. But the point is, we're never just one thing. If you go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, this is going back months and months in our teachings, or about five seconds if you turn to chapter 5, you'll see that that Jesus is contrasting the good life and, and the bad life. 
He says, you'll think you're good because you haven't committed murder. It's a pretty low bar, by the way. But you think you're good because you haven't committed murder. But I tell you, anybody who lives in a perpetual state of anger, it's like they've committed murder in their own soul. He says, you think you're good because you haven't committed adultery. But every time you look lustfully at another human being, it's like committing adultery in your own heart. He says, you feel like you're good because you swear these elaborate oaths to heaven above, but there's deceit in your words. And on and on the list goes. His point seems to be that it's the inner life that matters. But the way to test the inner life is to look at the outer fruit. Your inner life determines your eternal destiny. It will shape you. But the evidence of the inner life is there in the fruit that your life yields. You are slowly becoming either that good person or that bad person, and you cannot remain endlessly neutral. One or the other is always slowly happening in your life. And we fool ourselves when we think we can opt out of making that decision. We are becoming a specific person day by day by day, whether we're intentional about it or not. Jesus seems to be saying, be intentional. Be intentional about the eternal internal. Be intentional about the eternal internal. Let me give you an example of what I think he means. This comes from a favorite book of mine, C.S. Lewis, a little book called The Weight of Glory, and he's talking about that, about the eternal internal. Here's what he says. He says it's a serious thing to live in a society of those who are quite possibly sons and daughters of the living God. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you might be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror of corruption, such as if you were to meet it, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. Lewis goes on, he says, it's in light of these overwhelming possibilities, and it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people, he writes. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these things are mortal, but their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals, immortals that we joke with, that we work with, that we marry, that we snub, that we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. In all of this, if you had to do a quick mental survey of the landscape of modern culture, would you say we tend to focus more on the internal or more on the external? Selfies, Instagram, manicured Facebook and LinkedIn profiles, achievements, degrees, long lists of the people that we know and the networks that we maintain, the titles that we have. The GTA is a culture of posturing. I don't think we're alone 
It just happens to be really concentrated here. It's so easy to focus on the outside. And dealing with the inside, I mean, let's be honest, it's tough. It's hard to look inward. Self-awareness is brutal. It's brutal. We think of ourselves in a certain way, and then we, we do the hard work, the searing work of looking inward, and we realize it's not exactly the truth, is it? It's not for the weak of heart. I grew up in a, a wonderful home, a loving home, a Christian home. I grew up in a loving Christian family and a loving Christian church. I was taught a deep love and a reverence for the scriptures. I was taught about a relationship with Jesus. Uh, I can't remember a time when the name Jesus wasn't in my life. We were serious about living out our faith. But you know, sometimes it's easier to adopt the behaviors associated with religion than it is to internalize the message and be transformed from the inside out by the faith itself. Let me say that again. Sometimes it's easier to adopt the behaviors associated with a religion than it is to internalize the message and to be transformed from the inside out by faith itself. The internal process, it takes so much longer. You could call it transformation if you'd like. In the language of the old King James translation of the Bible, it was called sanctification. We knew from the scriptures how we were supposed to act. So we weren't supposed to drink. We weren't supposed to smoke. We didn't dance. Not because we weren't supposed to. We just weren't any good at it. It was embarrassing. We didn't sleep around, and we didn't choose close personal friends who did any of those things. That's how we were raised. And honestly, sometimes I wonder, were we trying to live more like what we thought Jesus was like? Or were we just trying to to act on the outside so that nobody would know the difference. There's a big difference, isn't there? There's a difference between, uh, between acting externally, obeying the rules, and living internally and loving the person. And I don't think we are trying to be hypocritical, uh, though it certainly can lead to hypocrisy. It, just, it took a ton of energy to maintain all of the behavior. Are we becoming like Jesus? Or are we just acting like Jesus? Is the difference. And in that difference, that's where legalism happens, is it not? It's not intentional always, but it happens by default when we opt for outward behavior instead of inward transformation. Is a Christian just somebody who's learned not to sin? Or is a Christian somebody who's encountered a new way of living and learned to internalize the values of God's kingdom? That takes more time. That's a process. Acting like Jesus is outward. Becoming like Jesus is inward. And there is a difference. Jesus changes that natural outflow of our lives by altering the inward flow of thoughts and feelings and intentions. If I were to ask you now or later in the day to to turn to a neighbor or to a spouse and describe to them what you did today. Would you rather tell them about the activities of your day? Or would you tell them about the thoughts that you had during the course of the day? We all know what we would choose. Why do we do it? Because we settle for the outward stuff. 
The inward stuff is too hard. It's too revealing. It's too honest. It's too raw. And actually, I, I think I've come to believe at this stage in life that for many of us who follow Jesus, what we've missed somewhere along the line is a genuine, life-changing experience of grace, of the grace of Christ. Oh, we talk about it, we know it, and we quote the scriptures about it, but have we felt its effect in our lives? When you examine the good news of the gospel, you might as well just describe it as unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable good news, ridiculous in its lavishness. It's unbelievable, but it's still just fantasy. It's fantasy until you've experienced that grace for yourself. And I think that many followers of Jesus truly follow him, but have never had a genuine encounter with that kind of grace. Where do you find it? You find up when you have messed things up in the most horrible way, produced bad fruit for a whole season in your life. And in the midst of that, you've encountered the forgiveness and the loving connection of Jesus, who's willing to accept you, again, because he is relentlessly narrow in his love for and devotion to God, but incredibly broad-minded and welcoming of people, accepts you in the middle of the messiness of your life and leads you out gently by the hand. And you start to let go of the need just to look like you're performing well outwardly, that you're doing okay in a way that everybody can see. And you acknowledge and you realize, I have to put my energy in an entirely different direction, just not manufacturing appearances, but genuine change. I mean, let me be clear here. I mean, I think it's really healthy to be raised with a solid, clear structure of behavior. Our kids, they, they need structure. They, they long for structure. They won't ask for it. But, but one of the, the dilemmas right now of COVID with kids is that a lot of the things that gave structure to their day are missing. And it's a crazy time for parents. We need some structure. We need consequences. We need fairness. My kids want fairness. They want a sense of justice. Sometimes they know that, that it's good to be told what to do and what not to do. But at some point, at some point in the long journey towards maturity, our focus shifts. It needs to shift from that outward attention just to the rules, the structures, to an internal adoption to the values, the principles that gave birth to the rules in the first place. I don't know, that, does that make sense? We need to become the living reason why the rules exist in the first place. We don't live a life of rule following, we live a life of blessing. A life of blessing that flows out of this personal integration that we have with the set of values that created the rules. I know that sounds a little bit up here, but, but hear me out. Those of you who are who are fans of, have enjoyed reading the work of Brené Brown. And you know Brené Brown? A few of you? Yeah. She would call this wholehearted living. She says, every time you receive compassion from God when you don't deserve it, your internal life shifts a little bit. Every time you take a moment to hear God whisper into your life, you are mine, you're my son, you're my daughter, something internal shifts. Every time you become aware of some daily grace, you recognize the promises that, that God belongs to you and you belong to God. Something internal shifts. 
Brene would say that every time you accept and receive God's peace instead of anxiousness, instead of fear, these things that permeate our culture, something internal shifts. But it has to be experienced. We have to experience the grace for ourselves. It has to be authentic. I mean, it's the one thing that just can't be taught. It has to be caught. And boy, as a culture, people are desperate to see that really caught. They will accept nothing else. I mean, maybe, maybe 50 years ago you could get away with it. Maybe even 20 years you could get away with it. But, but in this culture, if it's not authentic, it is not happening. This culture will sniff out hypocrisy right away and call it. Of course, they don't tend to identify it in themselves, but, but they have a great nose for hypocrisy. So let's, uh, let's come back to what has been the core question, really, of the whole series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what does it mean to be a good person? Is it just someone who follows the rules? That's behavior modification. Or is it someone who would naturally want to do the good thing? That's transformation. That's the inner life. Not because you're told that you have to, but welling up deep inside is an impulse that says, This is what I want to do. This is who I want to be. Jesus made it clear with his invitation that when we surrender our will, when we give over to his direction, that somehow he would be at work in us, in the inner life, that he would surround us with this gift. He called it the Holy Spirit. And we've used all kinds of of language and image and metaphor to describe it, but it's the tangible presence of Jesus in our lives, transforming us. A disciple is simply someone who has said, Jesus, I put you in charge of what's on the inside. That's all it is. If I were to strategize the best way to make changes in my life, I would seek out a mentor. Now, I could choose a mentor that I could meet with once a month. And during that time, I could sit there on a couch and that mentor could crack open my head and dump in all the accumulated wisdom and knowledge and facts of their life. And there would be some change. But what if I moved in with a person? What if I lived with them daily? Walked where they walked? Did what they did? That's the invitation Jesus gives. I'll move in. I'll move in. Now, I'm, I've said this before. I, I love people, but I'm a natural introvert, right? So um, I know that we need to have house guests. I hate having house guests. I don't like it when people move in. Yeah. I like it when they entertain, and then at the right time, 10 o'clock, they go home. <laughs> so moving in is disruptive, right? Unfortunately, it's also the only way that real, lasting, inner life change happens. Grab your Bibles again. Flip with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke 6, verses 43 to 49. Working with the same metaphor here. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Good people bring good things 
out of the goodness that is stored up in their heart. Evil people bring evil things out of the evil that is stored up in their own heart. But out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Whatever we're storing up leaks out. Have you noticed that? You say something, and then you hear what you just said. You say, pardon me, I'm having a bad day. Something was overflowing in you, and it leaked out. People know. I mean, they know that about us. Every one of us, we're storing up something. We're either filling ourselves up with, with envy and comparison and jealousy, anxiety, or we're filling ourselves up with forgiveness and gratitude, with laughter and empathy and compassions. Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure or lovely or admirable, anything that is excellent or praiseworthy, fill yourselves with those things. I mean, let's face it. You can, you can take high-octane fuel and put it in a Ferrari And eventually that car is still going to wind up in a junkyard. You can take expensive organic food and put it in your stomach, but eventually you will one day be buried and turned to dust. Take the finest materials and put them in the most lavish home, and it will still last, in North America at least, for a hundred years. But you were made to last for eternity. What are you allowing the prophets of this day to place in your life? What's filling you up? One final thought, and I guess it occurs to me as my friend Glenn is sitting right here in the front row. The one thing I like about COVID is people actually sit in the front row because they don't have a choice. They get escorted right to the front. There's one thing that will almost certainly change us from the inside out, and that's suffering. And that's unfortunate, because I wish it were something else. Suffering has a way of rearranging the internal wiring of our lives. And I mean, let's be honest, I'm the first person in this room who would run as fast as I can away from suffering, and I have done it. I've done it through denial, and I've done it through avoidance. But then there are times when suffering just flat outruns me and tackles me and leaves me face first in the mud. And then when that happens, your only option is to deal. Suffering comes. Unfortunately, it comes to all of us. We can't outrun it all of our lives. In fact, I'm convinced that suffering is the common language of humanity. Success is helpful, but... It's in our common suffering that we really connect with other people at a heart level and everything becomes common ground. That's why it's so important. It's why it's such an important tender moment. Things like Black Lives Matter. Things like uh, uh, black indigenous people of color. Groups that are coming forward and saying we are in pain. We want you to listen to our pain. This is a moment that we'll see some of the things that have divided us, social, economic, racial barriers, dissolve. Suffering does that. The research has shown time and again that empathy is something that is dropping quickly in our culture, and that's a problem. 
Empathy is what allows us to feel the suffering of another person. Suffering is the pathway back to empathy. I'm grateful. I'm, I'm so deeply grateful that the core of Christianity is a long-suffering God who patiently waits, who desires a relationship with him, not by forcing it, but by suffering through that time of waiting. Jesus' life was filled with suffering, not just on the cross, but from infancy right to the end. Read between the lines of his story. His life was filled with all kinds of it. He was acquainted with the deepest of pain, and yet children were attracted to him. People were magnetized by him. They followed him. They felt loving, loved and forgiven by him. Joy was somehow surrounding this life that was marked by suffering. If God isn't going to take away earthly suffering, then by all means, I want a God who I know is in there with me in the midst of it, who shows up and walks through the thick of it and the worst of it. Suffering alters the inner life. But let's, let's be honest about this too. It doesn't always change it for the better. Some people flourish and, and some people are crippled by it. We can't afford to be passive. The choices that we make will either harden our hearts or they will produce the most compassionate people in the world. Growing up, I learned to really strongly dislike one of the favorite, most quoted, most bumper-stickered and bookmarked passages of the Bible. Romans 8, 28. How many, that's a favorite for you? Okay. Those of you who, who don't know it by its verse number, Romans eight twenty eight says that we know this, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Even as a teenager, though, particularly as a teenager during a season when I watched my, my best friend or one of my best friends flattened in a car accident, I couldn't reconcile the suffering of the world with the idea that God was somehow causing it. Now, actually, I'd misread the verse. It didn't say God was causing it. It said God was at work in it. It doesn't say God causes all the evil and suffering, but it says that somehow he's in the midst of it doing something. Regardless, I struggled with the verse and I despised it. And then one day, I happened to read the next verse, Romans eight twenty nine, which nobody makes into wall plaques and, and bumper stickers. It says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, that they might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus. Me? You? For the first time, the idea struck me that one possible outcome of all of this ridiculous suffering was inner transformation to become just a little bit more like Jesus. But I had choices to make. I could either cooperate with the processes and become compassionate, empathetic, wholehearted, or I could nurture anger, bitterness, complain about the injustices of life, become brittle. I was making honest choices, whether I realized it or not at the time. Choices 
that would alter the final outcome. But if you're willing to enter into the, into the rhythm, the flow of grace, then Romans 8.28 really does become true. God really is at work in all things for the good of his people. I want to acknowledge that there are people in the room today who are living right in the middle of the crucible of suffering. We need grace, not the word. We need the authentic experience. We need the stirring work of the Holy Spirit at work in our inner lives, giving us the ability to move in the right direction when it feels like we have when it feels like we have nowhere to turn. Let's go back to the garden and, and close with this. John fifteen five, thinking about that image again of of a life that bears fruit. John fifteen five, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Remain in me and I in you. If you do that, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We can live a fruitful life. A life of blessing and joy and compassion. And it all rests on one decision. But I'm going to leave that for next time. I'd just like to pray with you now. Father, I want to pray specifically for for this one thing. That your grace would become real for us. Jesus, that you could see beyond all of our outward posturing. That you could meet us down there at the very core of our lives and abide with us there. That your grace could be experienced by your people today. Lord, we pray today for anyone who finds themselves right there in the heat and the fire and the crucible of suffering. Open a window, crack a door, turn on a light, bring a person or a thought. God, lead them out and strengthen them. Give them courage, give them fortitude. Add to all the strengths that you've designed with them and within them. Fill them with your peace. Surround them with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.